Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. Well, it's my wonderful, awesome opportunity today to talk about the life of Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. Not going to lie, one of my heroes, Elder Holland, was my president as a BYU student in the mid-1980s and came to know and love him. I think I've read every talk he's ever given. I think I've read every book. And uh, not only am I a, a fan, and I know that shouldn't be said that way, but what I mean by that is someone who can instill hope and faith and optimism in any group of people. I would take Elder Holland as my coach and mentor for anything. I'm so grateful for his life. He's had a huge impact on me. There's no question about it. His life and his teachings saturate the teachings and the experience that I've had in the classroom over the past 40 years or so. I think a great way to start would be from an article in the Ensign years ago by Don Marshall, our former BYU professor. The title of the article was called Jeffrey R. Holland, A Style of His Own. And he started off this way. He said, imagine a popular speaker who never took a speech class, an avid, almost obsessive reader who never reads a bestseller, a top-notch ski salesman who has never been on skis, an athlete who once lettered in basketball, football, baseball, and track, but now has to be prodded even to jog. Envision a small-town teenager caught up with the idea of building and erasing hot rods for a living, one day graduating from college with the highest honors, obtaining a master's degree with distinction, and then receiving a PhD at Yale. Or picture the high school funny man uninterested in going on a mission, finding himself, though, becoming an institute teacher, the dean of religious instruction at BYU, and then commissioner of church education, and then president of the world's largest private university. Far-fetched, and then... Brother Marshall says, as an embodiment of these fascinating paradoxes, Brigham Young University's President Jeffrey R. Holland may seem an enigma, but with his very determined and clear-cut notions of BYU's mission and destiny, he could hardly be described as wishy-washy. He instead, a many-faceted personality gifted with an inevitable ability to approach life from multiple viewpoints simultaneously. One of the things I like to do in my Living Prophets class as we approach Elder Holland's life is I talk for a minute about some of the great LDS speakers in our day. And we identify who some of those speakers are. I don't think it's necessary to do that on our podcast, but we do identify those speakers. And I ask them, why why are they great speakers? And there's different reasons for that for each person. But then I say this, why is Elder Holland such an incredible speaker? Because I think many of us would recognize that Jeffrey R. Holland has been one of the most profound, prolific, significant speakers in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in our day, but why is he so good? And our students talk about his passion, his emotion, uh, his command of the language. But then one of the things that I will tell our students is I'll say, now watch for this. Watch Elder Holland open up. 
Watch him be vulnerable. Watch him share his own personal experiences with, with once again, passion and with relevance to us. And we'll talk more about that as our podcast develops. But I think that's one of my favorite aspects of Elder Jeffrey R. Holland as a speaker is his willingness to open up and share. So he did grow up in St. George, Utah, in a home his mother and father literally built with their own hands. This comes from his biography and the ensign a few years back. His mother, Alice, descended from Latter-day Saint pioneers who helped basically found and carve out Utah's Dixie. But his father, Frank, as I understand it, from Park, the Park City area, was not even a member of the church for quite a while, who then joined the church and then for some time was not real active in the church, but a wonderful man who became a public accountant. He was a civic leader in St. George. In fact, he was the kind of man that when he did become active and fully engaged in the church, he was a powerful teacher and loved the Book of Mormon and taught great lessons from that book. And the youth of the church were very much enthralled by Frank Holland's, uh, his methods of teaching. And I love that Elder Holland, when he was a boy, said to his dad, Dad, you know what stinks about our little community here is we don't have Little League Baseball. Other communities have Little League Baseball. We don't. And Frank Holland said, oh, yeah, watch this. And pretty soon they had a Little League Baseball organization in St. George. And I just love that about his dad. Now, Elder Holland's sister said of her brother Dennis and her brother Jeffrey, that they have this Irish charm and wit, that they have the ability to take everyday incidents and turn them into stories that could have you holding your sides with laughter. And I think, this is just my own opinion, but I just think Elder Holland is probably very funny, and if we knew him on a very personal level, he would definitely be the funny guy in the room. And I love that about him, that he's he has that great sense of humor, but also that deep sense of spirituality, and he's able to, to combine both of those. His mom once said of him that as a boy growing up, he was very obedient, that he always did whatever he was asked. Uh, that Think of it, that even, even as a young man with, with you know, priesthood duties and responsibilities, yet a father who wasn't real active, he always fulfilled those duties and responsibilities. His mom then shared this person, personal experience, but she said once when Jeffrey was a youth, she let him go to a party with the understanding that he'd be home by 10 o'clock. And when he looked at the clock and realized that uh, he only had 15 minutes to make it home, he ran from one end of St. George to the other. She said, he just never gave me any trouble. He was always doing what he was supposed to do. I think one of the great attributes of Elder Holland to this day is his kindness, is his friendliness. I still remember as a BYU student, you'd walk past Elder Holland, who was on a sidewalk, talking to a few students, you would tell him hi. He always had a warm greeting for everyone. Now back to his biography in the Ensign years ago, he was friendly. Children loved him because he was good to them. When he worked as a gas station attendant, he also, by the way, had been a paper boy and a grocery bagger, but people would deliberately go into his lane at the gas station to have their car serviced just because he was so kind and so friendly. Just friendliness came naturally. And then Elder Holland said this, he said, I have always loved people, and I think while growing up, I knew everyone in the city of St. George, which I have very little doubt. I'm sure that's true. 
the mayor of St. George at the time uh, the Elder Holland was growing up said that Jeff Holland was a natural leader. This was Carl Brooks. Jeff was in a position to lead the crowd away from the church or towards it, and as a teenager, he always chose toward it. And then this great compliment. While some young people might have felt that living the gospel ruled out having fun, Jeff Holland showed that you can do both. And there it is, the great combination of humor and fun and happiness and joy, but also of deep spirituality, of love of the Lord and love of the gospel. Now, Elder Holland was smart. That was one of the things that, that classmates, other peers would talk about as he grew up in St. George middle school and high school years. He was one of the smartest uh, young men that they, that they knew of, but he also was a great athlete, an incredible athlete. In fact, he said of himself, I played on every kind of team that could have been assembled. He was a member of Dixie High School state championship football and basketball teams in 1958 and lettered in football, basketball, track, and baseball. In fact, Elder Holland letters in four sports. He's quarterback on the football team. He's the captain on the basketball team. They win the state championship in football and basketball. He's voted the school's outstanding athlete, which he shrugs off by saying that, you know what, no big deal. The school was so uh, small that everyone had to play a part. Uh, that mayor, Carl Brooks, said if there was a game going on in St. George, Jeff Holland was either watching or playing, he said. Elder Holland did have the opportunity to play one year at Dixie College before his mission, and then he comes home from his mission. He's the co-captain of the team, and he plays that, that next year, and so he becomes one of our only members of the Quorum of the Twelve, well, the only member of the Quorum of the Twelve that I'm aware of that played a collegiate sport. If, you, we, if we combine the first presidency, then we have President Irene high-jumping uh, at the University of Utah. But Elder Holland just loved to be involved in sports. And one of the benefits of that involvement was that it kept him close and it allowed him to meet Patricia Terry. Patricia moved from the, from the metropolis of Enterprise, Utah, to St. George while she entered high school. She becomes a cheerleader. Jeff's Elder Holland, he's you know, playing all, uh, on all these teams, and they just start to date. And uh, they become very close and have a great, wonderful experience together. And it was Sister Holland, it was Patricia, who made it very clear that I'm only going to date someone who's a return missionary. And Elder Holland, growing up in that home that he grew up in, wasn't really planning on going on a mission. That just wasn't in the cards for him. And it wasn't until he met Patricia that he started considering very seriously the prospect of going on a mission. In fact, of Patricia, he said, her faith has always been as pure and as powerful and as strong as any person that I've ever known. Now, Elder Holland ends up being called to go serve in the British mission. He calls it the major spiritual turning point of his life, the beginning of my beginnings in mature gospel growth. He had several mission presidents on his mission, but one was Marion D. Hanks. And Elder Hanks was a very young general authority called in his 30s, now serving as a mission president at the same time, and uh, with a wife and young children in the mission field. And that had an impact on not just Elder Holland, but many of the missionaries who looked at this family and would say to themselves, this is the kind of family I hope to have one day. And once again, Another part of that great emphasis was on the Book of Mormon.
Uh, Elder Holland said of his mission president that he had, he had a profound influence on my life as he did upon all the missionaries. In fact, before Elder Holland's mission, he had every intention that one day he would become a medical doctor. Not sure what area he was going to go into, but he wanted to go into medicine. However, when he told his mission president that, and, and Marion D. Hanks had a way. He could just tell you how it was. And when Elder Holland said, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor, he said, no, you're not. Yeah, you're not doing that. You are to be a teacher. That's what you're supposed to do. And Elder Holland wasn't quite sure what that meant in terms of teaching. If that was academics, if it was you know some subject like English, or if it was religious. But he knew this, that President Hanks used the Book of Mormon from daylight to dark with the missionaries. It became our text, Elder Holland said. It was our missionary guide. And my decision to teach stemmed from my mission experience, which reinforced my love of the Book of Mormon, the Bible, and other scriptures. And he said in one interview with the Church News years ago, I knew that somewhere, somehow, someday, I wanted to teach the scriptures and teach the gospel. Now, here's another interesting uh, fact from Elder Holland's life is that his father does become, like I said, active and strong in the church. And brother and sister Holland, Frank and Alice, uh, send their mission papers in to be called on a mission and they're called to Elder Holland's mission. <laughs> and Alice Holland laughs when she recalls that her son claimed to be the only missionary who said farewell to his parents at both ends of his mission. And so Elder Holland does go home first as his, well, his parents come into the mission field, and then not long after that, he goes home. And so when he marries Patricia in the St. George Temple on June the 7th, 1963, his parents weren't even around. They were on their mission. Now, referring to that experience and others like it, I want to share this talk with you. It's, it was called Because of Your Faith. It was the October 2010 General Conference, and Elder Holland just profoundly thanks members of the church and callings and the way they serve and his parents. It's a wonderful talk if you need a boost today. But he said this, Elder Holland said that too often I have failed to express gratitude for the faith and goodness of such people in my life. Speaking of parents, President James E. Faust stood at this pulpit 13 years ago and said, quote, as a small boy, I remember my grandmother cooking our delicious meals on a hot wood stove. And when the wood box next to the stove became empty, grandmother would silently go out to refill it from a pile of cedar wood outside, bringing the heavily laden box back into the house. I was so insensitive that I sat there and let my beloved grandmother refill that box. Then his voice choking with emotion, he said, I feel ashamed of myself and have regretted my omission for all of my life. And I hope someday I can ask for, for her forgiveness. Now here's Elder Holland. If a man as perfect as I felt President Faust was can acknowledge his youthful oversight, I can do no less than make a similar admission and pay a long overdue tribute of my own today. He said this, quoting now, when I was called to serve a mission back before the dawn of time, there was no equalization of missionary cost. Each had to bear the full expense of the mission to which he or she was sent. And some missions were very expensive, and as it turned out, mine was one of those. As we encouraged missionaries to do, I had saved money and sold personal belongings to pay my own way as best I could. I thought I had enough money, but I wasn't sure how it would be the final in the final months of my mission. 
And with that question on my mind, I nevertheless blissfully left my family for the greatest experience anyone could hope to have. And then he just talks about how much he loved his mission. But then I returned home just as my parents were called to serve a mission of their own. What would I do now? How in the world would I pay for a college education? How could I possibly pay for board and room? And how could I realize that great dream of my heart to marry the breathtakingly perfect Patricia Terry? I don't mind admitting that I was discouraged and frightened. And hesitantly, I went to the local bank and asked the manager, a family friend, how much was in my account. He looked in surprise and said, why, Jeff, it's all in your account. Didn't Didn't they tell you? Your parents wanted to do what little they could to help you get started when you got home. They didn't withdraw a cent during your mission. I suppose that you knew. Elder Holland said, well, I didn't know. What I do know is that my dad, a self-educated accountant, a bookkeeper, as they were called in our little town, with very few clients, probably never wore a new suit or a new shirt or a new pair of shoes for two years so his son could have all those for his mission. Furthermore, what I did not know but then came to know was that my mother, who had never worked out of the home her whole married life, took a job at a local department store so that my mission expenses could be met. And not one word of that was ever conveyed to me on my mission. Not a single word was said regarding any of it. How many fathers in this church have done exactly what my father did? And how many mothers and these difficult economic times are still doing what my mother did. My father has been gone for 34 years, so like President Faust, I'll have to wait and fully thank him on the other side. But my sweet mother, who turns 95 next week, is happily watching this broadcast today at her home in St. George. So it's not too late to thank her. To you, Mom and Dad, and to all the moms and dads and families and faithful people everywhere, I thank you for sacrificing for your children and for other people's children, for wanting so much to give them advantages you never had, and for wanting so much to give them the happiest life you could provide. Now, if we were in our Living Prophets class right now, I would stop and say to my students, there you have it, vintage Elder Holland, opening up, sharing with us his deep personal feelings, in this case, about his parents and the sacrifices that they made for him. Well, after finishing their associate degrees in St. George at Dixie College, Jeff and Pat transfer from the population of St. George at that time uh, in the early 1960s was probably around 5,000. And in Provo, it was 36,000. So I'm sure 36,000 compared to 5,000, Provo seemed like a metropolis. And when the Hollands arrived at BYU during that time period, Elder Holland began to have significant doubts in his life. And I love this story because I believe that it's something that many of us can relate to in terms of our own feelings of of self-doubt and some depression and some despair and wondering some days, can I do this? So I'm just going to share with you uh, how I wrote this up one day. Uh, And this is a chapter in a book that I wrote on preparing for marriage. But on January the 13th, 2009, Elder Holland spoke at a CES fireside held on the Brigham Young University campus. 
He closed his talk entitled Remember Lot's Wife with a story that was very significant to me because on January the 15th, 1985, 24 years earlier, almost to the day, Elder Holland closed a talk that he gave with his wife Patricia to the BYU students. That talk was called Some Things We Have Learned Together. And the essence of that story was about a time in Elder Holland's life when he felt that he was not equal to the task before him as an undergraduate student at BYU. And his wife, Patricia, infused him with faith and strength and hope. There wasn't much difference in the two stories, but I had changed significantly in my own life from the first time I heard that story to the time I was hearing it again. In fact, in January of 1985, as President Sister Holland shared their personal story, I sat in the Marriott Center with my trim frame, full head of hair, holding hands with my fiance Janie Cook. We would be married at the end of that semester, and life could not have been better for me. I was a returned missionary. I was madly in love and soon to be married. I was at my favorite college in America, studying what I loved. And then President and Sister Holland's story about their marriage just resonated with me, and I felt the Spirit as they spoke. And their story inspired me to want to have the kind of marriage that they had. But then when Elder Holland spoke as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve in January of 2009, my life was very different. It was full. It was rich, but it was stressful, and it was demanding. And in many ways, Janie and I were not the same people we had been in our college days. We had been seasoned and shaped by life's demands and experiences. My trim frame from the 1980s was now somewhat pudgy, and I was now sporting about half a head of hair. I was the bishop of my ward. I was running my own marriage and family therapy practice in the suburbs of Dallas. We had eight children at every stage of life that you can imagine. Two were returned missionaries seeking their own eternal companions at BYU. Several of our children were in college, several in high school, a couple in elementary school, and life was really demanding at that time. I remember that. But as I listened to Elder Holland speak in January of 2009, something very different happened with me. 24 years earlier, I certainly had felt the spirit of that message and that story. And by the way, if you're listening, you're like, what story? I'm going to get to that, I promise. But as I watched the talk in 2009 from my home in Texas, I found it very hard to control my own emotions. So much of what Elder Holland taught resonated with me, and I couldn't help but think of what my own marriage had become during that time period. As he spoke, I couldn't help but think of how much Janie and I had grown over the years and how the Lord had been there for us during every peak and valley. I also recognized how instrumental the Lord had been in molding and shaping us and our children, and I knew that the reason for our happiness was because we had tried the very best we could to build our marriage and home and family on the rock, on the Savior, on Jesus Christ. But I also recognized in a very significant way that that rock in my life, of course that rock was the Savior, Jesus Christ, but another rock for me had been my wife, Janie, and I never had comprehended in 1985 how much she would mean to me uh, in the coming years, but she has been my strength and my great support and has supplied me with much power and confidence in my life. Now, hopefully that's all kept, uh, kept you in suspense a little bit, but what I've done is I've blended the 1985 account of this story and the 2000, 
2009 account of the story for a little bit more detail. In uh, the 2009 account, uh, Elder Holland quoted Robert Browning, Grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. The last of life for which the first was made, our times are in his hand. Who saith a whole I planned? You shows but half. Trust God, see all, nor be afraid. Now, Sister Holland and I were married about the time both of us were reading poems like that in BYU classrooms. We were starstruck and as fearful as most of you are at these ages and stages of life. We had absolutely no money, zero. And for a variety of reasons, neither of our families were able to help finance our education. We put all owned, we put all we owned in a second-hand Chevrolet and headed for Provo. We were not uneasy. We were not frightened. We were terrified. We were little hayseeds from St. George, Utah, and here we were in Provo at Brigham Young University where the world was to be our campus. We had a small apartment just south of the campus, the smallest we could find, two rooms and a half bath. We were both working too many hours, trying to stay afloat financially, but we had no other choice. The registration staff helped straighten out some of our transfer credits. The folks in the employment center suggested where we might work. We pieced together some furniture and found some friends. And then we splurged, left our 45-a-month two-room and a shower apartment to have an evening meal at the Wilkinson Center cafeteria. We were impressed and exhilarated and still terrified. We knew we were on the greatest of all possible campuses. And I remember one of those beautiful summer evenings walking up from our apartment on 3rd North and 1st East to the brow of the hill where the Mazer building so majestically stands. Pat and I were arm in arm and very much in love, but school had not started and there seemed to be very much at stake. We were nameless, faceless, meaningless little undergraduates seeking our place in the sun, and we were newly married, each trusting our future so totally to the other, yet hardly aware of that at the time. And I remember standing about halfway between the Mazer building and the president's home and being suddenly overwhelmed with the challenges I felt. New family, new life, new education, no money, no confidence. Life that day seemed so overwhelming and the undergraduate plus graduate years that we still anticipated before, uh, before us seemed monumental. In fact, nearly insurmountable. Our love for each other and our commitment to the gospel were strong, but most of all the other temporal things around us seemed particularly ominous. And I remember turning to Pat, holding her in the beauty of that August evening and fighting back the tears. And on a spot that I could probably still mark for you today, I said something like this, Honey, should we give up? I can get a good job and carve out a good living for us. I can do some things. I'll be okay with a degree. Shall we stop trying to tackle what right now seems so difficult to face? Do you think we can do it? Do you think we can compete with all these people in all these buildings who know so much more than we do and are so able? Do you think we've made a mistake? And then I said this, Do you think we should withdraw and go home? The future holds nothing for us. As a brief tribute to her and what has been a very personal message anyway, I guess that was the first time I saw what I would see again and again and again in her. The love, the confidence, the staying power, the reassurance, the careful handling of my fears, and the sensitive nurturing of my faith. 
especially faith in myself. She who must have been terrified herself, especially now, linked to me for life. Elder Holland said, nevertheless, set aside her own doubts, slam shut the hatch of the airplane, grab me by the safety belt, and said, of course we can do it. Of course we're not going home. The future holds everything for us. Then standing there, almost literally, in the evening shadows of a home we would much later for a time call our own, she gently reminded me that surely others were feeling the same thing, that what we had in our hearts was enough to get us through, and that our Father in Heaven would be helping us. Twenty years later, I would on occasion look out that window of the President's home across the street from the Brimhall building and picture there on the sidewalk two newlywed BYU students, down on their money and down on even more on their confidence. And as I would gaze out of that window, usually at night, I would occasionally see not Pat and Jeff Holland, but you, and you, and you, walking that same sidewalk. I would see you sometimes as couples, sometimes as a group of friends, sometimes as just a lone student. I knew something of what you were feeling. Some of you were having thoughts such as these. Is there any future for me? What does a new year or a new semester or a new major or a new romance hold for me? Will I be safe? Will I be sound? Can I trust in the Lord and in the future? Or would it be better for me to look back and go home? Faith is for the future. Faith builds on the past but never longs to stay there. Faith trusts that God has great things in store for each of us and that Christ truly is the high priest of good things to come. Please don't feel you're the only ones who have never been fearful or vulnerable or alone before marriage or after. Everyone has, and from time to time, perhaps everyone will yet be. Keep your eyes on your dreams, however distant and far away. Live to see the miracles of repentance and forgiveness, of trust, of divine love that will transform your life today, tomorrow, and forever. Paraphrasing James Thurber, is one of the best and simplest definitions of love given. Love is what you go through together. That counts not just for husbands and wives, but also parents and children, brothers and sisters, roommates and friends, missionary companions, and every other human relationship worth enjoying. Now, I know that's a very personal message from Elder Holland, but once again, it's vintage Elder Holland. It is all the way him opening up and sharing from his heart what matters the very most. And I've benefited greatly in my own life, as you can tell from that story. Well, Jeff and Pat continue. He majors in English at BYU. And uh, nearing graduation, he wasn't really eager to become a teacher of English. That was his major, but he's like, okay, do I really want to be an English teacher? But then there came an opportunity to teach religion part-time at BYU the next year, while he worked on a master's degree in religious instruction. And as Elder Holland taught the gospel in the Joseph Smith building on the BYU campus, he felt that great spirit and his gifts and talents emerged, and he knew that this was his love and passion to teach the gospel. Elder Holland shared on one occasion what it was like to make that decision. In fact, he said it this way, he said, I am very, in a very real way indebted to Pat for the chance to teach in the church educational system. I can remember very clearly, I can almost describe the setting in our apartment in the spring of 1965 
when without any forethought in the matter and certainly no particular planning, it appeared that religious education might be the field opening up for us. And I remember saying, honey, one of the things this means is that we'll never have much money. She fired back without any hesitation in her voice and not a blink of her eye. She said, we'll have enough. I refuse to let money determine the quality and the meaning of our lives. Isn't that so profound and powerful? And then Elder Holland, in his talk, Our Consuming Mission, said, I think it was one of her finest hours. I literally, I think literally and truly I would not have been able to sign that first contract if her fiery little declaration had not been ringing in my ears. It would be one thing to prune down my own list of material wants and needs, but I did not know if it was fair to expect it and in some sense impose it on my wife and our children yet unborn. She stiffened my backbone then, and she has stiffened it ever since. Along the way, we went off to get a PhD at a pretty good university, lived like paupers among the BMW splendor of our Ivy League neighbors, came back to CES with degree in hand, two children and not a cent to our name, to sign our next contract for a grand total of $11,000 a year. My Yale friends were signing contracts for considerably more than that, I can assure you. Anyway, so there's the decision. The big-time decision is made for Elder, Elder Holland to enter the, the church educational system. And having been a product myself of the church educational system, I can tell you a little bit about that. Uh, it was very different in those days. In fact, Elder Holland uh, receives that master's in religious education at BYU and goes right off to California to direct the institute program at Hayward, California. And back in those days in the church educational system, they tended to move you a lot. They don't do that as much now as they did in, as they did then. Anyway, and so they're in Hayward, California for one year, and then they transfer to Seattle, where Elder Holland teaches at the Institute at the University of Washington. It's there in Seattle that Elder Holland is called into the bishopric of a young single adult ward, and then not long after that, he's called to be the bishop of that ward and serves in that capacity for a short time. He's there for a year. And uh, Elder Holland shares a great experience there. He said that they were so poor that he applied for a second job as a night watchman. We would say maybe today a security guard. But with that particular company, you had to pay for the uniform to be a security guard out of your own pocket. And Elder Holland said, we were so poor, we didn't have the money to pay for the uniform, so I had to turn the job down. Anyway, so it wasn't long after that that the Hollands finished their stint at the University of Washington. And during that time, Elder Holland had applied to Yale to do a doctorate degree in American Studies. And that's when this next incredible story takes place that many of you have heard from his talk called A High Priest of Good Things to Come. In fact, this talk is one that I've heard many people say, when I'm down, when I'm discouraged, this talk is my go-to. And Elder Holland is so masterful as he shares this experience. And by the way, this is General Conference, October 1999. Forgive me for a personal conclusion which does not represent the terrible burden so many of you carry, but it is meant to be encouraging. Thirty years ago last month, a little family set out across the United States to attend graduate school. No money, old car, every earthly possession they own packed into less than half the space of the smallest U-Haul trailer available. 
Bidding their apprehensive parents farewell, they drove exactly 34 miles up the highway, at which point their beleaguered car erupted. Now, one of my favorite parts of this story is that Elder Holland does not reveal that this story is about them until later, right? So right now, we don't know who the story is about, but here we go. Pulling off the freeway onto the frontage road, the young father surveyed the steam, matched it with his own, then left his trusting wife and two innocent children, the youngest just three months old, to wait in the car while he walked the three miles or so through the southern Utah metropolis of Canaraville, population then, I suppose, 65. Some water was secured at the edge of town. A very kind citizen offered a drive back to the stranded family. The car was attended to and slowly, very slowly, driven back to St. George for inspection, U-Haul trailer and all. After more than two hours of checking and rechecking, no immediate problem could be detected. So once again, the journey began. And exactly the same amount of elapsed time at exactly the same location on that highway, with exactly the same pyrotechnics from under the hood, the car exploded again. It could not have been 15 feet from the earlier collapse, probably not 5 feet from it. Obviously, the most precise laws of automotive physics were at work. Now feeling more foolish than angry, the chagrined young father once more left his entrusting loved ones and started the long walk for help once again. This time, the man providing the water said either you or that fellow who looks just like you ought to get a new radiator for that car. For the second time, a kind neighbor offered a lift back to the same automobile and its anxious little occupants. He didn't know whether to laugh or cry at the plight of this young family. How far have you come? He said. 34 miles, I answered. This is the first time Elder Holland tells us this is him. And how much further do you have to go? 2,600 miles, I said. Well, you might make that trip, and your wife and those two little kitties might make that trip, but none of you are going to make it in that car. He proved to be prophetic on all counts. And then Elder Holland said this, Just two weeks ago this weekend, I drove by the exact spot where the freeway turnoff leads to a frontage road just three miles or so west of Canaraville, Utah. That same beautiful and loyal wife, my dearest friend and greatest supporter for all these years, was curled up asleep in the seat beside me. The two, the two children in the story and the little brother who later joined them have long since grown up and served missions, married perfectly, and are now raising children of their own. The automobile we were driving this time was modest, but very pleasant and very safe. In fact, except for me and my lovely Pat, situated so peacefully at my side, nothing of that moment two weeks ago was even remotely like the distressing circumstances of three decades earlier. Yet in my mind's eye, just for an instant, I thought perhaps I saw on that side road an old car. With a devoted young wife and two little children, making the best of a bad situation. Just ahead of them, I imagine that I saw a young fellow walking towards Canaraville, with plenty of distance still ahead of him. His shoulders seemed to be slumping a little. The weight of a young father's fear evident in his pace. In the scriptural phrase, his hands did seem to hang down. In that imaginary instant, I couldn't help calling out to him, Don't give up, boy. Don't you quit. You keep walking. You keep trying. There is help and happiness ahead, a lot of it. 
30 years of it now and still counting. You keep your chin up. It will be all right in the end. Trust God and believe in good things to come. Now, isn't that a great, great story? And for me, a big part of it that's so significant is that's the story that every family has. What family do you know that hasn't had a story of their car breaking down somewhere on a trip or a travel to some place? Yet, one of the great gifts of Elder Holland is to be able to take that experience and to make it into one of the most powerful, powerful stories in a general conference. What a gift. Well, the Hollands do eventually make it to Yale. And eight months or so after their arrival in New Haven, Pat was called to be the Relief Society president. I think she had served as the primary president before then. Elder Holland was called on the high council, and then he was called to be a counselor in the stake presidency and ends up serving as a counselor to two different stake presidents while they're at Yale for that short three-year stint. The stake center was 55 miles from our home, he said, and the stake covered basically most of New England. It was huge, and we suffered mega stress, he said. We had determined that with two babies at home, the pat would not work, and so Elder Holland took every opportunity. Back in those days, we called it Know Your Religion, to speak at these Know Your Religion programs wherever he could, just so they could make ends meet, so to speak. But it was a tough time. In fact, it was a time that Elder Holland called the Red Sea, their Red Sea of Yale. In fact, he said, I'm convinced that my experience while I was at Yale was far more for my church education than for my academic training. The PhD was wonderful, and I couldn't have had greater experience in graduate school than I had, but I feel the reason we went to Yale was primarily so that I could have this great church experience. And as most of us know, Elder Holland had that great experience to serve in the church and, and build the kingdom there. Now, the Hollands will tell you that their family has always been their top priority. Even before the children were in elementary school, uh, Elder and Sister Holland were having scripture study with their young children. And by the way, that inspired me as a young father that we could do the same because the Hollands could do that. He shared with his children his own love for the gospel, his happiness and, and enthusiasm, and perhaps most important, he would teach his children how to receive revelation. Now, speaking of revelation, many of you have seen the Mormon message on this exact story of Elder Holland and his son, Matthew, who are hiking somewhere, I'm thinking in southern Utah, as I remember the story right. But it was late in the day, and darkness was enveloping them in unfamiliar territory. And Elder Holland asked his son Matthew to pray for direction. Why? Because they had come to a fork in the road, and they needed to go to know quickly if they needed to go right or left. After the prayer, Elder Holland asked Matt how he felt, which way they should go, and he said, I think we should go to the left. And Elder Holland said, I feel the same way. Let's go left. And they go to the left. They take the left road. They're in a truck. They turn it down that road, and 10 minutes later, they come to a dead end. Now, a lot of us have had those experiences in our lives where those prayers and what we insp felt inspired to do ended up kind of a dead end. Matt thought for a time and then asked his father why they would get that kind of answer to their prayer. And Elder Holland, so good, replied that with the sun going down, that it was undoubtedly the quickest way for the Lord to give them the information. In this case, which one was the wrong road? And now, though the other road might not be familiar or could be difficult, 
or long, they could proceed confidently knowing it was the right road even in the dark. Now, once again, I salute Elder Holland here and pay tribute to him as a father because I'm not sure as a dad if I would have been able to come up with an answer like that so quickly. But Elder Holland just nails it, right? Now, I'm probably bombarding you with stories today, but these stories are so awesome for me. So let's fast forward for a minute. We're, we're at Yale in the early 1970s, but we're going to fast forward to 1983 when Elder Holland is the president of BYU. Back in those days, and I remember it well, during the priesthood sessions of General Conference, the church would often invite a guest speaker to speak in the priesthood session. And I remember who some of those guest speakers were. Lavelle Edwards, Don Lynn, the astronaut, Peter Vidmar, the Olympic athlete, Devin Durant, the BYU basketball star. And I'm sure there were some others that I've forgotten. But in, in part of that lineup was Elder Holland and his 16-year-old son, Matt, who were asked to speak in the priesthood session. Now, what Elder Holland's going to do is he's going to tell a story that happened while he was at Yale, and, uh, and that's why I want to share it now versus uh, later during the BYU years. I want to share it, share it during the Yale years while we're still here. Now, once again, for all of us, if you were invited to speak in general conference, of course we would want it to be the greatest talk that we've ever given. We want it to come across as profound and eloquent and deep and intellectual for sure, right? And spiritual. So it's quite amazing to me of what Elder Holland chooses to talk about in General Conference. And once again, I will assume that Elder Holland in 1983 thought, well, you know what, this is probably the only time I will ever speak in a, in a General Conference, so here I go. I really doubt if he thought, you know, when I'm an apostle, I'm sure I'll talk about some of these other things. No, I'm pretty sure he felt like this would be the only time he would ever speak, which makes what he said even more profound and significant. Because what he tells is an experience of what I would call a failure as a father, or at least he felt that he had failed. He said in that conference talk, may I share a brief but painful moment from my own inadequate efforts as a father. Early in our married life, my young family and I were laboring through graduate school at a university in New England. I think it's so cool that he doesn't even mention at Yale. Pat was the Relief Society president in our ward, and I was serving in our stake presidency. I was going to school full-time and teaching half-time. We had two small children then with little money and lots of pressures. In fact, our life was about like yours. And one evening, I came home from long hours at school, feeling the proverbial weight of the world on my shoulders. Everything seemed to be especially demanding and discouraging and dark. And I wondered if the dawn would ever come. Then as I walked into our small apartment, there was an unusual silence in the room. What's the trouble, I asked. Matthew has something he wants to tell you, Pat said. Matt, what do you have to tell me? He was quietly, he was quietly playing with his toys in the corner of the room, trying hard not to hear me. Matt, I said a little louder. Do you have something to tell me? He stopped playing, but for a moment did not look up. Then these two enormous, tear-filled brown eyes turned toward me, and with the pain only a five-year-old could know, he said, I didn't mind mommy tonight. I spoke back to her. And with that, he burst into tears, and his entire little body shook with grief. A childish indiscretion had been noted. A painful confession had been offered. The growth of a five-year-old was continuing, 
and lovingly and loving reconciliation could have been wonderfully underway. Everything might have been just terrific except for me. And if you can imagine such an idiotic thing, I lost my temper. And it wasn't that I lost it with Matt. It was with one, 101 other things on my mind, but he didn't know that. And I wasn't disciplined enough to admit it. And he got the whole load of bricks. I told him how disappointed I was and how much more I thought I could have expected from him. I sounded like the parental pygmy I was. And then I did what I had never done before in his life. I told him that he was to go straight to bed and that I would not be in to say prayers with him or to tell him a bedtime story. Muffling his sobs, he obediently went to his bedside where he knelt alone to say his prayers. Then he stained his little pillows pillow with tears his father should have been wiping away. If you think the silence upon my arrival was heavy, you should have felt it now. Pat did not say a word. She didn't have to. I felt terrible. Later, as we knelt by our own bed, my feeble prayer for blessings upon my family fell back on my ears with a horrible hollow ring. I wanted to get up off my knees right then and go to Matt and ask for his forgiveness, but he was long since peacefully asleep. My relief was not soon coming, but finally I fell asleep and began to dream, which I seldom do. I dreamed Matt and I were packing two cars for a move. For some reason, his mother and baby sister were not present. And as we finished, I turned to him and said, Okay, Matt, you drive one car, and I'll drive the other. This five-year-old very obediently crawled up on the seat and tried to grasp the massive steering wheel. I walked over to the other car, trying to start the motor. He could scarcely be seen over the dashboard. But there, staring at out at me again, were those same immense, tear-filled, beautiful brown eyes. And as I pulled away, he cried out, Daddy, don't leave me. I don't know how to do it. I'm too little. And I drove away. A short time later, driving down that desert road in my dream, I suddenly realized in one stark, horrifying moment what I had done. I slammed my car to a stop and threw open the door and started to run as fast as I could. I left the car, keys, belongings, and all, and I ran. The pavement was so hot it burned my feet and tears blinded my straining efforts to see this child somewhere on the horizon. I kept running, praying, and pleading to be forgiven, and to find my boy safe and secure. As I rounded a curve, nearly ready to drop from physical and emotional exhaustion, I saw the unfamiliar car I'd left Matt to drive. It was pulled carefully off to the side of the road, and he was laughing and playing nearby. An older man was with him, playing and responding to his games. Matt saw me and cried out something like, Hey, Dad, we're having fun. Obviously, he had already forgiven and forgotten my terrible transgression against him. But I dreaded the older man's gaze, which followed my every move. I tried to say thank you, but his eyes were filled with sorrow and disappointment. I muttered an awkward apology, and the stranger said simply, You should not have left him alone to do this difficult thing. It would not have been asked of you. I always like to think of that man in the story, by the way. This is me interjecting now, but just as our Heavenly Father. Back to Elder Holland. With that, the dream ended, and I shot upright in my bed. My pillow was now stained, whether with sweat or tears. I do not know. I threw off the covers and ran to that little metal camp cot that was my son's bed. And there on my knees and through my tears, I cradled him in my arms and spoke to him while he slept. I told him that every dad makes mistakes, but that they don't mean to. I told him it wasn't his fault that I had a bad day. 
I told him that when boys are 5 or 15, dads sometimes forget and think that they're 50. I told him that I wanted him to be a small boy for a long, long time because all too soon he would grow up and be a man and wouldn't be playing on the floor with his toys when I came home. I told him that I loved him and his mother and sister more than anything in the world and that whatever challenges that we had in this life, we would face them together. I told him that never again would I withhold my affection or my forgiveness from him, and never, I prayed, would he withhold them from me. I told him that I was honored to be his father and that I would try with all my heart to be worthy of such a great responsibility. Well, Elder Holland said, I have not proven to be the perfect father I vowed to be that night and a thousand nights before and since, but I still want to be. And I believe this wise counsel from President Joseph F. Smith, brethren, if you will keep your children close to your heart, within the clasp of your arms, if you will make them feel that you love them and keep them near to you, they will not go very far from you and they will not commit any very great sin. But it is when you turn them out of the home, turn them out of your affection, that is what drives them from you. Fathers, if you wish your children to be taught in principles of the gospel, if you wish them to love the truth and understand it, if you wish them to be obedient to and united with you, then love them and prove that you do love them by your every word and act toward them. What an incredible general conference talk. The first general conference talk that Elder Holland ever gave. And once again, can you believe that for his first talk, he just lays out his own weaknesses, his own shortcomings as a dad. And I bet there wasn't a dad in the audience that night that didn't hear that message and think, wow, I can completely relate to that. So let's stay with this Yale theme for a minute, because after three years, the time is going to come for Elder Holland to leave, for the Hollands to leave. And there were several choices. Number one, Elder Holland could accept a temporary position at Yale as a graduate instructor. Number two, he could accept a faculty position at any other university in the country. I'm sure there were a lot of places at the time that would have loved to have hired Elder Holland. Or three, he could go back and teach in the church's seminary and institute program. And of that experience, he said, I remember kneeling down to seek an answer, and halfway through the prayer, it was so clear to me what we should do that I just stopped, unable to go on with the prayer. And I just stopped and said something like, Thank you, Lord. My Yale professors, he said, thought it was incomprehensible that I would turn my back on these opportunities, but I never looked back. I'm putting myself in a Yale professor's shoes just for a second and thinking, wait, this this incredible student that we've had, this man who's going to change the world, one of our favorite students is going back to his church to teach Sunday school. That's all he's going to do. Well, what an understatement of that's all he's going to do. In fact, Elder Holland continued with that. My Yale professors thought I was deranged, that they somehow had failed to reach me. But what had reached me was the hand of the Lord. He responded, and our lives have been blessed beyond imagination. We have been able to do the thing we love the most with a, among the best people in the world, and he's talking about his experience in the church educational system. So the Hollands leave uh, New Haven in 1972 in the fall and return to Salt Lake City. 
Elder Holland is invited to teach Institute at the Salt Lake Institute of Religion. And I'm sure in his mind, he's thinking, okay, this is what we're going to do for a while. I'm going to be an Institute instructor at the University of Utah. But just a couple of months later, he is invited to fill a new position. In those days, the church had an organization called the Melchizedek Priesthood MIA. So think of MIA as Mutual Improvement Association. And obviously, that organization was for young single adults. And they needed someone in the church to chair a young single adult committee that would uh, be specifically over those who hold the Melchizedek Priesthood. Now, in that position, Elder Holland was to work with Elder James E. Faust, Elder L. Tom Perry, and Elder Mary D. Hanks. Now, I know some of you may hear that name of Elder Hanks and think, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wasn't that his mission president? But once again, think of how Revelation works. Revelation works with inspiration and information. you got to have the information to get the inspiration. Couldn't you see those men sitting around a table and Mary D. Hanks saying, okay, let me tell you about this guy greatest missionary in our mission, just finished his doctorate degree at Yale, an institute teacher, an incredible speaker and teacher and leader, we'd be dumb not to get this guy. And so Elder Holland serves in that capacity for a short time, leaves the institute and serves as the the church's new Melchizedek Priesthood MIA director for a short time. That was in the early, well, 72. And then in 1974, He's appointed Dean of Religion at BYU. Now that also comes across as a little bit odd in that Elder Holland didn't teach at BYU at the time. And usually if you're in academics, you'll understand this, but usually the Dean is selected from the faculty. And so it was really weird or really rare that all of a sudden Elder Holland, not a faculty member at BYU, is selected as Dean of Religion and he's in his 30s. He's young. Now, I asked one of our faculty members, because I teach at BYU, I asked one of our faculty members who was there when Elder Holland was there what that was like to have this dean placed upon you. And he said, you know, at first it was kind of weird. It was a little bit different because we didn't really even know who he was. But he said it didn't take long for all of us to love Jeff Holland. He said he was an incredible leader. This, by the way, would have been during the, the Dallin H. Oaks administration. So that was once again 1974. In 1976, Elder Holland is loving life. He's at BYU. He's in the religion department. And the president of BYU, President Oaks, calls him in and says, who would you like to take your place? And Elder Holland's saying, wait, what did I do? What are you talking about? What did I, wait, what? He couldn't figure out what he had done wrong. He was depressed. And then the next day, President Kimball, the prophet, the president of the church, called and wants to speak with Elder Holland. And now Elder Holland's thinking, okay, now I'm really in trouble. Uh, He's thinking things probably like, okay, I'm getting fired, I guess. What in the heck did I do? The prophet wants to talk to me. And then to make it even worse, he receives a phone call from President Kimball's secretary, Joseph Anderson, who says, how long would it take you to get here to the church office building? And Elder Holland said, or President Holland at the time, said that uh, he could be there in two hours. And then... Brother Anderson said, make it one. So if I'm Elder Holland, I'm driving up to the church office building thinking, I am in the biggest trouble in the world and I don't even know what I've done. So then he meets with President Kimball, who says, we would like you to be the church commissioner of education. Elder Holland was dumbfounded. All he could do is look at President Kimball and stare. 
And then President Kimball said, well, if you have nothing more to say, have a seat. And they told him more about his responsibilities. Now, the next day, in jest, Elder Holland goes back to President Oaks and says, yesterday you were my boss, today I'm yours. Anyway, what a great, uh, great story. And so in 1976, um, Elder Holland becomes the Church Commissioner of Education. For those of you that aren't quite sure what that person does, they are over all the church schools, universities, so BYU-Idaho, or in those days, Ricks College, BYU-Hawaii, LDS Business College, but they're also over all the seminary institute programs in the church, and in those days, the church had a lot of what we would call kind of primary and secondary educational programs throughout the world church schools in the South Pacific, church schools in South America, church schools in Europe. You're over all of that as the church commissioner of education. Then in 1980, Elder Holland is asked to serve on a search committee to help them find a president to replace Dallin H. Oaks. And one day, Elder Holland, they're having these meetings. One day, Elder Holland isn't there yet. And I think it was N. Eldon Tanner who said, what are we thinking? Jeff Holland is the next president of BYU. Let's call him. So Elder Holland's trying to find all these names of who he could bring into the next meeting to recommend as the president. And then they, they sit him down and say, you know what, just sit down, put your names in your pocket. We want to talk to you for a minute. And then they issue him the, the appointment to serve as the president of BYU. And President, uh, or Elder, well, president Holland at the time says, President Kimball, you've got to be joking. And then President Kimball answers and says, you know, Brother Holland, in this room, we just don't joke that much. Well, I love that. And so Elder Holland becomes, in 1980, the new president of BYU. He's going to serve as the president of BYU for the next eight or nine years, from 80 to 89. And Elder Holland was an incredible BYU president, a wonderful BYU president who raised a lot of money, who elevated the academic uh, status of BYU to all, you know, across the country who helped get the BYU Jerusalem Center built, um, who was the president of BYU during what I would call the heyday of BYU in so many ways. Miss America comes from BYU, Charlene Wells uh, at that time. BYU is winning national championships in almost every sport. I mean, BYU is on the map, and it's incredible. So I think at this point, we'll conclude what I'll call part one of Elder Holland's biography, just saying that Elder Holland's life to me is inspiring. His life has been a life of hard work. And I love his work ethic. I love that Elder Holland has put his shoulder to the wheel, that he has not only accomplished dreams, but he's worked hard to attain those dreams. And that his wife, Patricia, by his side and his children cheering him on along the way is a great model for what strong marriages and families look like. At least it's been a model for me throughout my life.